นักบูตสัมภะวะโตอรหัตโตสมาสมพุทธะสานะโมตัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนะโมตัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะพุทธังธรรมังสังฆังคนุตรังอุปัชฌายังนามาสามส่วนเพื Portland wasn't on the itinerary, and Ajahn Pasano said, "Well, if you're coming to the West Coast, you really should go to Portland as well." So, um, and I'm I'm glad that I um, followed his advice, which I I have been doing to great profit for some twenty, thirty years now. And he he hasn't led me in the wrong direction in my life so far, which neatly or perhaps not so neatly leads me onto one of the things that I want to talk about this evening, and that is the qualities of the good friend or the kalyana mitta, and there are seven. Qualities of a Kalyana Mitta, and that was the seventh. Is the good friend, is one that never leads you astray. His advice or her advice um, is always worth following. I um, began my spiritual life. Um, in India, really, um, traveling overland to India as a teenager, and meeting number of gurus and famous, not so famous teachers, and being a little bit skeptical about the whole idea of submitting. Oneself to a teacher, and what I was particularly suspicious of was the idea that an enlightened master no longer needs to follow the rules, no longer needs to be moral in the conventional sense. The idea that someone who has transcended The dual, dualistic world, one who is no longer attached to right and wrong, can act with impunity and should not be judged by one who is still mired in the attachment to right and wrong, good and bad, and so on. 
I felt that was a very dangerous idea, but one that was very prevalent in spiritual circles. So one of the things that drew me to Theravada Buddhism was the fact that the great teachers, the great uh, monks, even though they were considered to be arahants, fully enlightened beings, they would still keep all the same rules as a newly ordained monk. Theravada monks of 40 years, 50 years, in the robes, dress exactly the same way as a monk of 40 or 50 days. He doesn't get a special hat or any kind of uh, special insignia. And indeed, it's a, a common uh, phenomena in monasteries in, in Thailand that if um, someone enters the Sangha um, in their middle-aged, for instance, they're often mistaken for the abbot. So if you imagine uh, Karuna Dhammo was uh, living in Thailand now, um, people would, uh, would generally come and bow to him and ask him for teachings because um, he, he uh, looks as though he's older than someone of his, of his reigns retreat because most people ordain when they're 20, you see. So we naturally assume if someone's 40, they've been a monk for 20 years and so on. So and the monks look the same and they act the same and this is a principle which goes right back to the time of the Buddha in which um, the Buddha himself spoke to Venerable Mahakasapa who was foremost in ascetic practices and he says something to the effect that Mahakasapa, you're, you're old now, you don't need to do all this, um, wearing rag robes and, and so on and so forth, uh, just loosen up a bit. And <laughs> and Virumal Maha, not exactly in those words, I can't remember the Pali, it's a loose translation. Um, the, and Virumal Mahakasapa said, ask for permission uh, to continue keeping these ascetic practices until the end of his life out of compassion for later generations. It's, it's one more, um, let's say, nail in the coffin of the, sort of the, the Hinayana accusations that um, Arahants are only concerned with their own welfare. In fact, quite the opposite. Um, monks, uh, Arahant monks from the time of the Buddha um, have consistently acted in ways not only for the benefit of their disciples, uh, monks and lay um, at that time, but for those that have not yet been born. And, and the way this works, and we can see this with the great arahant of, um, uh, of our generation, or slightly earlier generation, Lumpur Man, who was the teacher of Ajahn Chah and Ajahn Mahabua and Ajahn Fuang and all these teach all these great teachers, that he kept uh, the ascetic practices right until the end of his life. Um, see this with Ajahn Chah, arms round being uh, considered um, 
an absolutely integral part of the monk's life in in Thailand and so when Ajahn Man couldn't walk all the way through the village he just walked to the edge of the village when he couldn't walk to the edge of the village he walked to the um, few houses outside the monastery when he couldn't do that he walked to the kitchen it was only when he was uh, absolutely unable to walk at all that he gave up on the arms round he would eat all the food um, that he took out of his bowl he would never put any on his bowl lid or take any in um, in, in side plates and he was uh, even at the end of his life when he was very ill and one of his attendants um, brought him a little uh, a little um, uh, soup bowl or something of uh, food and uh, Ajahn, Mahabun, uh, Ajahn Man told him off and he said I'm a one bowl uh, I'm a one meal a day eater I eat all my food in my bowl so these are reflections that um, are very helpful to monks of later generations because if you have the underlying idea that once you're really accomplished then you don't have to do all the hard stuff anymore you don't need to do it anymore you've gone beyond that um, then um, you're opening the way to delusion and to um, seriously overestimating your own attainments um, one way of preventing that at least to a certain degree is when you have the the examples of the great teachers going uh, from Jaman back to Mahakasapa that even the great teachers, the fully enlightened ones, did this so what possible reason can you cite for not doing it? you see, that, that's the, the compassion of the Arahants so the idea of, of being a good example and doing things that you don't really need to do um, as an example to others both in the present and in the future is uh, really integral to the whole idea of being the Kalyana Mitta, the good friend and it's, it's somewhat ironic in Thailand which is a, a Buddhist country in that this principle um, is sadly lacking and the almost the opposite principle is generally found in society the more senior, senior you are the more easy you take it and you have special privileges and that's a proof of your status and it's a way an interesting way in which Thai society has without quite realizing it fallen away from the original Buddhist principles but the um, the good friend is of course um, to be found on on many levels so we're talking on a, on the higher level here of the teacher and the <coughs> and the first of the qualities of the Kalyanamitta to be found in, in the teacher particularly um, is that he is lovable this is the word that's used and I speak as someone who as I mentioned just now um, arrived in Thailand with um, a somewhat skeptical view of teachers in general and 
even at the age of 20, feeling myself somewhat of a veteran of um, spiritual um, centers and teachers. Um, and uh, um, pleased with appreciating the Theravadan monastic system, and as I'd come to know it with uh, Ajahn Sumato in England for a few months, but totally unprepared um, for my first meeting with Ajahn Chah, and the only way I can really um, explain it or, or communicate what happened is I fell in love at first sight. Uh, and um, and it, I've never wavered in my devotion to, to him ever since that day. And Ajahn Chah was someone who could um, create that kind of um, devotion um, very easily. And in the evening, sometimes monks would go and listen to him talk or massage his feet or um, just generally hang out because you just wanted to be close to him. Uh, once when I was an Anagarika, I knew I, wa I wasn't supposed to be there and I, I hid behind one of the posts in his kuti at the back because I just wanted to sit there and and then uh, and and it was dark and I thought he didn't see me <laughs> and um, my lay name was Sean which he couldn't pronounce because there's no sh sound in Thai and so he called me Chorn which is means spoon <laughs> so so he said is that you spoon <laughs> uh, and I said Yes, I thought he'd be kind of um, pleased to see um, how interested I was to sort of soak up his teachings, even though I couldn't understand what he was talking about. And, and uh, he said, go and walk meditation. That's all he said. <laughs> so he... Um, the, the, the point being really that uh, myself and almost everyone else um, would sit there and nobody wanted to leave. Um, even if your legs were hurting and the mosquitoes were biting and uh, sometimes he'd go on and on and on but there was one part of it, you just wanted to be there and um, in 1982 I believe um, it was I think the first Pansar, the first range retreat which Ajahn Pasano was the senior monk at uh, Wat Bananachad Ajahn Chah by that time was already ill and he went to spend the retreat up at a different mo monastery about a hundred kilometers north of um, Ubon, of Wat Bapong, his, his monastery. And um, Ajahn Pasano took us all up there to, to visit and his, uh, a new kuti had been, a new cottage had been built for him um, some distance from the main Dhamma hall and he was uh, going to he was walking over from his from his cottage to to the Dhamma hall with all of us in attendance and he was using his walking stick and he slightly 
he was suffering from diabetes by this time, and he said it was like walking on on cotton wool. He didn't have very good; he wasn't very stable on his feet. And and he reached over and he grabbed my arm, and for the rest of the uh, path, he walked with one hand holding his wa walking stick and one hand walking holding my arm. And I thought, if I could do this for the rest of my life, I'd be happy. Even if I don't ever become enlightened, all I ask is just to walk around and have Ajahn Chah hold my arm I, I, wherever he wanted to go. Um, so this is a um, quality of a, a great teacher, the, the Galyana Mitta, someone who can um, arouse that, that sense of affection and, and love and devotion. The the next quality is that of being worthy of respect. Um, someone whose practice, whose bearing, deportment, whose um, <clears throat> whose whole uh, way of life is one that um, inspires a sense of of respect. Um, you feel uplifted to um, and impressed by his her, if it's, a, if it's a woman, his bearing and, and teaching. And the third is um, his, he or she is someone worthy of emulation. And Ajahn Chah was um, distinguished in by being very frank about the problems and difficulties that he'd had in his early practice. And this was um, somewhat unusual, and I think very astute psychologically, in that often teachers seem, uh, enlightened teachers, um, seem almost like a different species. You know, it's kind of, wow, they're kind of wonderful people, and you feel dazzled and, and um, inspired, but at the same time there seems to be a huge chasm between them and you. But Ajahn Chah would insist um, and repeat um, his own um, difficulties as, as a young monk. I'll give you an example. He was um, on what we call Tudong, wandering around the Isan countryside with an Anagarika as an attendant. And he spent some time in a small monastery and a young widow started to go to the monastery every day offering food and she had a five-year-old son so she used her son as a kind of a, a means to create a relationship with the young Ajahn Chah and um, so over the course of time he, he started to to feel rather uncomfortable and then one night, about midnight, he, he woke up his Anagarika and he said, get your stuff together, we're leaving. And, and he said, and the Anagarika goes, well, can't it wait till the morning? No, it can't wait, we're leaving now. <laughs> and basically Ajahn Chah ran away. And uh, he was, um, you know, very, very frank about that. And in fact, he, you know, he's saying that running away is sometimes the wisest thing you can do if you recognize that you um, you don't have the resources 
to deal with the problem and you just stay there and um, um, allow yourself to be dragged deeper and deeper in merely because you're too proud to admit defeat then um, that's not wise and so he uh, made a tactical withdrawal as they say in the army and um, and left and and sometime sometime later he was able to work through that um, but he it, it was through these uh, anecdotes that the young monks who had their own struggles could say well yeah he's been through that he knows what we're going through and he started off not so differently from us so if he can do it so can we um, and that I think that was very or to use a modern phrase very empowering for uh, for the young members of the Sangha so he um, he inspired affection respect emulation he was someone who had great um, patience and um, returning to a theme that I've been talking about um, on a number of occasions in, in the Bhagiri I think that um, patience and patient endurance um, gets a rather raw deal these days that um, we tend to forget that the Buddha in one of his key teachings uh, in which he summed up the essence of his um, of his Dhamma, the Awara Patimoka, he said very clearly, Kanti Paramanta Pautitika, which means patient endurance is the supreme incinerator of defilements. Mm -hmm. So, assuming that we all uh, wish to find some freedom from defilements, surely we should be vitally interested in that quality which the Buddha said was the supreme incinerator um, of the said unwholesome qualities. But that doesn't tend to be the case. Um, often we look on it as a kind of consolation prize. Uh, we say, oh well, um, this practice didn't really go so well, I didn't get this, I didn't get that, at least I developed a bit of patience. It's like, well, at least I didn't completely waste my time. Um, so we, I don't think that we give it the, the status and the respect which it deserves. And certainly the development of patient endurance is at the very heart of monastic training, which um, I undertaken Ajahn Sudanto, Ajahn Karuna Dhammo. Um, this is the, the, the very um, foundation of uh, monastic life, certainly as Ajahn Chah understood it and taught it. So merely remembering that I think can um, be very valuable in, in daily life. So when you're with um, people or you're in, uh, experiencing situations which you don't particularly like um, or you are in a situation where you're not with the people or the uh, you're not in the situation that you'd like to be uh, when you're associated with the unloved and separated from the loved rather than feeling uh, depressed by that then you realize this is the situation the wonderful occasion 
for the development of patient endurance, the supreme incinerator of defilements. Um, so uh, I think uh, an important point here is that uh, we must be very wary of adopting a reductionist idea of meditation as something we do in a particular posture with our eyes closed or walking up and down, where spiritual cultivation has to be non-stop, unremitting um, every moment of the day. And although the practice and the development of mindfulness, clear comprehension, uh, has to be a, a flow throughout the four postures, throughout the various uh, uh, activities of the day, the the object of mindfulness and the particular Dhamma practice which we are following um, has to be adapted wisely and knowing time and place and knowing how to adapt to situations is one of the sure signs of the wise person, of the sage. So when you're alone um, then perhaps the best practice would be simply mindfulness of the body. And when you're brushing your teeth, uh, you could, for instance, use the mantra danta, 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 which is Pali for teeth, or you can just like teeth, 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 reminding yourself that you're actually cleaning teeth, and if you didn't clean them, what would they be like? Um, so it can be a simple... Uh, mantra, or there can be some reflection and reminding oneself of the nature of the physical body. Um, similarly, with showering, with getting dressed, um, we're putting our attention on those activities and learning how to uh, respect every moment of the day. And indeed, this is one of the skills that we are also learning in the meditation period. We're giving equal and absolute uh, attention to every single breath, not making any choices here. Um, because if you're mindful of some breaths and, mind and not mindful of other breaths, then samadhi will never arise. You have to be mindful of every single breath, one after another. Um, when <clears throat> so this equal and absolute um, respect and attention to the breath, if um, practiced consistently, should start to bear fruit in the ability to attend to, to be awake to um, every single experience and moment of your um, time off the meditation cushion. So we, we so often um, make distinctions. This is an important activity and this is just filler, this is just kind of a nothing period in between important activities. And so the mindfulness drains away and the momentum of practice is never, um, is never apparent. So there are lots of short um, periods in the day in which we can replenish 
our mindfulness rather than allow it to dissipate, for instance, walking from one room to another room, walking upstairs, downstairs, walking from one building to another building, from a building to a car, standing in a lift. Instead of standing in the lift and looking in the mirror, which you've already done probably a few times today already, um, you can simply close your eyes or look at your feet and, and stay with your breathing. Um, and so rather than uh, feeling that you're stressed out and rushed, these short meditation periods of 30 seconds, 60 seconds, two minutes um, are, are bringing you back to yourself and, and helping you ground yourself again and again and again. And um, it's this, um, this system by which if you apply yourself to doing that in your daily life, then when you start to meditate, you find your ability to attend to the breath um, is enhanced. So the more attention, consistent, uh, wise, balanced attention you can give to the meditation object, um, then the more uh, wise, consistent, balanced attention you can give to um, your daily activities, which in turn um, allows you to uh, apply the same effort in meditation. So there's this two-way um, system here, and observing that and, and noticing how it works is key to developing the the chanta, the interest and the enthusiasm to keep doing it. It's because we don't um, observe enough to observe the effects of meditation on daily life or on mindful practice of mindfulness in daily life on on meditation um, that the interest and commitment to practicing in that way doesn't arise um, as much as it should. So the um, the Kalyana Mitta and the good friend um, Chancha for instance seeing incredible patience and physically um, willing to, to bear with um, a great deal of discomfort, physical pain. Um, he suffered from all kinds of illnesses in his life from, from childhood onwards and um, as a middle-aged man he suffered great um, pains in his teeth uh, for years until finally um, he went to one of the local dentists, one of the sit-by-the-side-of-the-road kind of local dentists, um, and said, please pull out all my teeth. And so he had 17 teeth all taken out without anesthetic um, in one go. And um, uh, before that, he, um, the method he used was when one got wobbly, He'd, uh, he'd tie a piece of string around a rock and then the other piece around his tooth and then he'd throw the rock. <laughs> um, not something I'd recommend even for those of you without medical insurance. Um, the, uh, he had malaria um, on many occasions and some of his attendants would, would say that He'd be laying there with malaria and shaking, and and then somebody says, "Someone's come to see you. They've come a long way," and, and he would immediately just get up, put his robe on, 
walk downstairs and sit and, and give some teachings to people and, and they wouldn't even know that the moment they left he'd be um, back up on his, on his mat um, suffering again. So his willingness to endure physical discomfort for his um, to to perform his duties both to to the monastery and to the lay people was remarkable, but also the um, a, a point that um, actually Ajahn Pasno mentioned a couple of days ago, and that was his willingness to endure. Um, the negative emotions of his disciples. You see, a, um, a teacher is, uh, one of the roles of a teacher is to make people do the things they don't want to do. Mm. And one of the values of living with a teacher is having to do things you don't want to do, things that you probably wouldn't, um, you wouldn't be willing to do alone. But through um, your confidence that the teacher is asking you to do this through wisdom and compassion, not through um, some sadistic impulse, uh, you go along with it, and then you find out that it wasn't as difficult as you thought, and you realize that actually there's something within you far, uh, far more um, stable, far more grounded, far more noble, uh, far more courageous than uh, you ever knew. But initially uh, the teacher who um, is willing to frustrate the desires of his students in order for them to see directly um, the way in which um, desires cause suffering or unwholesome ignorant desires cause suffering will inevitably um, have to deal with some um, negative emotions. It's not that everybody think, thought that Ajahn Chah was wonderful in every way and, and felt happy when he made them do things that they didn't want to do. I said, there's, okay, one part of your mind says, this is, this is, this is good for me, it's medicine, but yeah, a number of monks would, agree, would uh, acknowledge that sometimes they got really angry with Ajahn Chah. And he knew that, it's not that he didn't know it, and he was willing to put up with that um, because of his loving-kindness. And I think that, again, a very, there's a very important, a vital connection between patience and loving-kindness. You know, you can, it's easy when, you know, you're living in an air-conditioned room and everything is sort of spread metta to all uh, nasty, creepy crawlies and things, yeah, well, yes, of course, they're not bothering you. But if you have no patience and then you find yourself in a very um, uncomfortable or threatening situation, you know, often the metta will dissolve because it has no firm foundation in patience. So this is one of the reasons why it was um, stressed so much. And I have a, actually a, a nice little story about a great monk who was reputed to um, be a great master of metta and a Tudong monk, a traveling monk, heard of his reputation and um, endured a long, difficult 
trek through the jungle to go to pay his respects and to learn about the practice of loving-kindness from the master. He arrived at the monastery and one of the young monks said, I'll take you and show you your cottage and a bit later on we'll go and pay our respects to um, the, the Ajahn. And while he was putting his things away in his cottage, he opened the window and, and there um, he saw through the window the Ajahn, the old monk, the monk with the great loving-kindness standing, looking so lovable and worthy of respect, worthy of emulation, standing at the edge of the forest. It's a beautiful sight. He was very inspired. But then um, a deer uh, came out of the forest and the old man's face, the old monk's face, transformed. It became ugly and, and vicious. And he picked up his walking stick and he hit that deer really hard. And the deer was frightened and ran away into the forest. And the monk thought, I've been fooled, I've been tricked, I've been cheated. All this long uh, distance I've walked. Um, to meet and learn from this monk who's supposed to have uh, greatest loving kindness what just for this i've seen i've seen the truth that no one else has seen and so he immediately gathered up his belongings and set off um, out of the monastery uh, sometime later the the young monk went to see the teacher and told him that the the, the guest had left um, already and the old monk thought about that and then said oh did you did you put him up in that cottage over there and then he realized what had happened and he, he said that's a shame see there's something that I wanted to speak about uh, to the monks about already you know the last uh, the last period um, the monks have been tipping their leftover rice and food at the edge of the forest and the deer have been coming down to eat the food and they've lost their fear of human beings and now a number of them have wandered into the village and they've been shot by the villagers and, and made into curries, venison curry and um, we need to make them afraid of human beings again, otherwise they're all going to get killed. Um, <clears throat> so stop tipping your food there um, and I'll frighten them away. So in fact, the Ajahn of course had been acting with great loving kindness, seeing the big picture. Now that monk went away and everywhere he went um, whenever he heard the name of this monk and how he said don't believe it you know I've seen with my own eyes he's a fake he's a fraud I'm not just repeating gossip I've seen it myself and um, and I think we've you know we probably met people like that as well and, and maybe maybe they're they are accurate but it's not a sure thing and sometimes we can um, just see a single slice of action and uh, draw um, a hasty conclusion from it which um, may lead us to create bad karma in future by denigrating uh, a pure being. So 
that was the kind of uh, mature loving kindness of of that monk and um, so willing to you know be sometimes be uh, a subject of some criticism um, when one is absolutely sure that what one's doing is the right thing then uh, we have to be willing to put up with the the worldly dhammas of praise and blame and it's an important reflection I think also to observe how um, how rarely praise and blame are truly merited it's to say that it, it doesn't mean that if you um, you act in a very good and kind and honest and um, uh, way and with great integrity that you will always be praised sometimes we, we feel that we, if we're very good people then we deserve um, to be treated well that somehow being good will make us safe and and everything will be okay but uh, although good karma always has good results the fruition of that good karma is dependent upon supporting conditions if you are um, acting in a very wholesome kind way but you're living in a community of uh, cruel, nasty, selfish people um, you probably won't get much positive feedback you'd probably be considered a bit weird um, or um, maybe even sent off to a psychiatrist who knows um, so if you um, if you have right view and you're living in a community of people with wrong view you know, don't expect praise for your wrong view seeing that praise is a conditioned phenomena and sometimes when you do something good some people are going to praise you um, some people are going to be indifferent some people are going to criticize you that you really did it out of a desire for uh, fame and fortune and to be and to be praised that you really had unwholesome um, intentions in doing that good thing some people may feel jealous um, that's it's almost inescapable if you act in a wholesome um, noble way that some people will feel jealous of you so understanding uh, this is the way the world is it's like this it's always been like this always will be like this the Buddha and all the great disciples were unfairly criticized for uh, various things in their lifetime so even if you become an arahant remember you know there'll be people that don't like you there'll be people that uh, criticize you there'll be people that run you down behind your back um, so um, spiritual purity is no guarantee guarantor of um, a life in an unenlightened society where everything uh, goes swimmingly and hunky-dory it's not the case at all because the world is like this so um, Ajahn Chah was accused of all kinds of things in his life he was um, he, at one point he was accused of being a communist this was in sort of the uh, the 1960s and the communist hysteria 
And in Thailand, I mean, the word communist just meant somebody I don't like. You know, so if you if you don't like someone, you say he's a communist. And and um, in in that kind of environment, um, in which Ajahn Chah had enemies from so even within the sangha, certain monks, senior monks, who felt he showed them up, um, and he showed what um, how monks could be, and how monks should behave, and so. Monks who weren't like that didn't behave like that. They weren't very happy about it. Um, so he had to deal with um, a lot of um, difficulties in his life. But he was very patient with it and didn't expect it to be any other way because he was always looking and learning from his experience. So the a trap in meditation... Um, and in spiritual life in general is of considering it a path towards some special eternal experience um, which you can call enlightenment or call whatever you like but the idea is that you're on this path sooner or later you're going to get to this state and then everything's um, over you're all right but the the the, the buddha called that the intention uh, to go to heaven. Um, the, the, the practice for Nibbana is not the practice for any kind of experience, no matter how elevated and profound and sublime it might be. It is still uh, at the end of the day, as they say, or the end of the eon, the end of the world cycle, it's still a sankhara, it's a conditioned phenomena and no conditioned phenomena can answer the deepest need of the human heart, which is for true freedom. So it's through the, um, the direct experience of um, all sankharas, all experiences, um, as just so much, just that, something that arises and passes away, um, that... Um, leads to that true freedom. And so one of the um, obstacles, I think, is that particularly in the Western world, perhaps, is we tend to have a rather um, dire view um, of who we really are. And this involves uh, a fundamental mistake in assuming that negative qualities are more real than positive qualities. Have you noticed that? So let's say you're, you're going to do something really wholesome and kind for, for other people. And you have no wish for recognition, for praise, for it's just doing it because it's just a really good thing to do. And you feel really good about that. And you feel your mind's really bright. And, and so um, you perform this action, and then within the course of that action, just for one second maybe, not even a second, something just pops up in your mind uh, um, that they're sure to find out it's me, and, and uh, they're sure to think that I'm, um, that I'm really wonderful, or some, some kind of uh, deluded or, um, let's say, defiled kind of thought arises in the mind. And then it passes away, and the mind returns to its wholesome state again. 
And so the, what is the mistake? The mistake is thinking that that unwholesome thought was who I really am. Yeah, all that sort of uh, kindness and goodness and all that, you know, really speaking, really, that's what's really behind it. I'm just really doing it because I want people to love me and to like me and, and, and so on and so forth. But the question is, why should one um, selfless, uh, defiled thought be any more you uh, than a hundred or a thousand um, selfless, wholesome thoughts? Mm. Um, but this is what we do again and again and again. We think, who I really am is not so nice. And somehow it's more the, the negative thoughts are more fundamental to our being than the positive ones. And if you can see the delusion in that, then uh, you're well on the way to letting go. And a lot lighter, brighter, happy kind of existence. So the Buddha says um, that all ideas of who we are um, are false, but some can be taken on um, as working hypotheses, as just general kind of frameworks for the path, uh, which are constructive and useful. But we need to recognize the way in which we cripple ourselves in our practice through uh, attachments to certain um, false ideas. Um, there's a lot more I could talk about. Let me let me just finish the the Kalyana Mitta qualities uh, first. The the next one is skill in communication. Someone who knows how to speak. Ajahn Chah didn't speak any English except for can you eat sticky rice and uh, would you and uh, have a cup of tea, which he learned in England, and. <clears throat> But he had many, many disciples, and some people were very confused by this, and they would ask him, and he said, can you speak English? He said, no. Can you speak German? No. Can you speak Japanese? No. And he said, well, how did all these uh, monks from other countries come uh, to live with you? How, how do they live here? And he said, famously, um, can you, have you got any dogs in your house? And he said, yes. Have you got any cows? And he said, yes. Have you got any buffaloes? He said, yes. He said, can you speak cow language? No. Can you speak dog language? No. Well, how do all the animals uh, manage to live with you? And he said, well, the, the Westerners, he said, they're not difficult to train. They're just like water buffaloes. You just thread a rope through their nose and pull them this way and pull them that way. And they soon get the hang of it. So. So uh, he, he was able to communicate with us um, marvelously, even though he didn't speak our language. It was one reason why so many of us were very um, diligent and hardworking in learning his language. Um, mm -hmm. But also, I think it's important to recognize that it's not necessarily the content um, of what's, um, uh, what's said which in which lies the, the, the communication. Um, it's more the, the feeling of the student or the disciple that the teacher is speaking from his own experience, not just from a book, not from memory, but he is living. He is the living example of, of what he's teaching. 
so his words would um, go straight to your heart. And it's not the, the fact that every time Ajahn Chah opened his mouth and smiled, some, he'd say some incredible um, pearl of wisdom that you'd never heard before. So usually it was just something you'd heard many times before. But when he said it, it had an extra weight and uh, meaning to it. And he would, um, particularly with the Western monks who didn't speak his language, he'd use very simple phrases that you... Um, that were very easy to understand, but he was able to encapsulate the teachings so well. And this, in fact, is the the six of these seven qualities. Someone who's able to teach profound dhamma in a, in a very simple, um, everyday way. And he was a master of simile and metaphor. And the similes and metaphors would depend upon his audience. If he was speaking to um, members of the armed forces, he would use martial imagery. Speaking with farmers, he'd use um, farming imagery. If uh, Otherwise, he'd just use the things around him, a cup of water or a or, or a, uh, a bell or a Buddha image or just whatever was around people. And he was able to explain things which were abstract as uh, concrete and down-to-earth. Not only did it um, make the teachings clearer, it gave people a lot more confidence, and they say, "Well, you know, it's not so, um, it's not so abstruse and, and difficult and philosophical as you might think. It's it's just about things like water and, and earth and just the everyday part of our life. And Dhamma is right here and now. It's not something um, in a book, and it's not something that's so difficult to understand." So those were the qualities that he um, he showed to a remarkable degree, and was in many ways a, a, the greatest of of good friends. But this term is not restrict. This is the highest um, form of the good friend. But the Buddha's teaching is that we should all aspire to be good friends to those around us and certainly the qualities that I just well they're very elevated qualities um, but in day-to-day -day life that means giving a lot of thought what does it mean to be a good friend what what would I look for in a good friend what would be the the, the qualities that I would look for um, and then look at yourself and say to what degree have you developed those qualities. Mm. One, um, one or two simple rules of thumb or, or indicators of this is that, and, and you may have noticed this uh, yourself, that when you're with some people, uh, you find it easy to be good. You find that when you're with that person, uh, you're on the same wavelength, but also you tend to talk about things that are really uh, useful to you and and things that lift your mind up, don't sort of stain and, and um, sully your mind. Uh, and you find it easier um, to to act well and to speak well and to, and to think wisely when you're in the presence of that person. Whereas there are other people who uh, you may love dearly um, and there's no question of you abandoning them or not having anything to do with them, but you, you acknowledge that 
if you spend very much time with them, you tend to feel yourself dragged down by them. Their speech, their, it, there's a coarseness there which, which pulls you down. And you find yourself, after a while, really acting in, in a slightly more coarse way or, or speaking in a more coarse way um, and feeling yourself being dragged down. So that's, that's what we call the, the papamita. So it's the, it's the bad friend. So, um, and we all have within us, you know, the capacity to be good friends and bad friends, and and every, and so does everyone else. But um, taking uh, um, the good friendship as a um, as a goal in a community, and and thinking of ways and reflecting on ways to um, develop that sense of good friendship. And there are many sutta references and something you may find interesting to, to study. Um, for instance, um, there is a, um, a sutta in which the Buddha says some use this of the good person and the bad person. Is The good person is one uh, who um, doesn't like to repeat and discuss and expand upon the faults uh, of others. Even when asked, he doesn't or she doesn't like to speak about those things. If pressed, will speak only in the most general uh, terms and with a lot of, um, not exactly excuses, but um, examples of the causes and conditions which led up to that. So someone who's extremely reticent about the faults and defilements and weaknesses irritating habits of others um, and um, not speaking about them unless absolutely necessary um, in which case not not um, uh, getting into a long uh, discourse and really sort of uh, getting all worked up about it um, at the same time being willing and ready and frank and full in speaking about one's own faults and failings, if necessary, not having to go around and tell everybody, did you know I did this yesterday? And, and uh, you know, then I think they have blogs for things like that these days. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, so, um, but not being someone who feels they have to conceal certain things about their life in order to maintain a certain level of um, respect or to, to sustain a certain image of oneself that one hopes is out there but in brackets is usually not anyway um, so that as regards other people um, then not um, speaking about their faults and about yourself being willing to if it's appropriate now on the other side is speaking about good qualities um, being willing uh, to speak about the good qualities of others even if nobody asks um, coming out and being willing to speak and speaking at great length knowing how to find joy and happiness in the good qualities of others mm. it is just such a wonderful opportunity uh, to experience uh, happiness, rapture, spiritual development it's the lazy 
person's way to Nibbāna. You know, you don't have to do anything. You just sit back and appreciate what everyone else is doing, you see. Uh, it's, um, but so few people do it, you know. It's a free lunch. I mean, you don't have, you can just um, enjoy. Um, so, um, making that a practice, um, appreciating what others are doing, um, and sometimes saying, you know, did you notice how so how how kind they are? And and it's it's not that if you bring up the goodness and the kindness and so on of someone else that you are in any way diminished by that. Uh, not at all, but quite the opposite. You are ennobled by that. So don't think that somebody else's success and goodness um, somehow makes you seem sort of puny and, and worthless and poor. No, not at all. Um, and sim and uh, one's own good qualities then not so necessary to talk about. I mean, what what could be um, less appealing than hearing someone telling you about how great they are? You know? Um, there's only one person in the whole history of mankind that I know of who could talk about how great he was and it's actually inspiring and that was the Buddha um, but but nobody else should really try it very much it's, it doesn't um, sound very good um, so these these kinds of suttas about social life and living in community um, there's an awful lot in there you know don't skip them over for the um, for the meditation bits because if you don't sort this stuff out, you know the meditation won't uh, won't go either. And um, yes, I've, I've I've spoken beyond the time I'm, but I'm going to tell you a story to end with, uh, for a number of reasons. Once I've got a lot of stories in my mind at the moment because uh, someone in Thailand is collecting stories I've told over the years and been going through the manuscript with her. And secondly, because I've been talking about it with Sakula today and talking about um, an English book of stories for uh, for children, in that, that um, I went to the Bodhi Tree um, spiritual bookstore in Los Angeles a week or two ago, having been there once nearly 20 years ago, and I wanted to see what Buddhist books they had. And they've got more books on things like witchcraft than they have on, on Buddhism and Theravada Buddhism, you know, they've, they've probably got uh, more on uh, black magic cordon bleu cooking than they have on, <laughs> on Theravada, Theravada Buddhism. So I thought, you know, having a... <laughs> no, it's probably not such a thing. They, um, <laughs> they, um, the idea of having uh, a book of stories for children that parents could introduce Theravada Buddhism and concepts through... Uh, interesting, charming, moving stories, uh, I think is uh, something we are both interested in, yes. So I'm going to tell you a story that you might want to put in your... It's, it's a story that's appeared elsewhere, but I, I think it's all right. And it's a story I came across, I think, even before I became a monk, but I've always loved it. And it's a story about an old lady in Japan who's a miserable, sour-faced, Japanese prune-faced old lady who nobody likes, nobody loves. She's got one, at least one good point. She loves her grandson. And her dream is that her son is going to uh, go and study 
with the greatest master of calligraphy in in Tokyo. But this this like cutthroat competition to get in and become a disciple of this great master. But fortunately, she has a relation who is, um, at least on a local level, something of a of a master, but not quite on the level that she she wants for her grandson. But anyway, she takes him along and said, as a relative, would you be kind enough uh, to write some uh, some piece of calligraphy, um, some kind of recommendation that we could take with us to to Tokyo, um, and show the master? So he said, yes, of course. But then to a horror and consternation, instead of taking um, a, a, a paintbrush, he takes this old blunt pencil and he does like this um, and he gives it to her and she doesn't know what to say. You know, she doesn't want to seem ungrateful and, um, but come on, you know, this is the biggest thing in her life and how could he be so uh, disrespectful um, and, and, you know, what will the great master think? But anyway, nothing to be done. So she takes her grandson all the way to Tokyo, finally gets the audience with the great master, gives him the piece of paper, you know, somewhat uh, uh, um, frightened way, gives it to him and he says, incredible, yes, okay, I'll take him straight away. Anybody who's recommended by a great master like this, um, for sure, no problem. So she goes home, the boy stays in Tokyo, and some years later he goes home to visit, and he walks into the village, and the atmosphere has, has changed. And in his grandmother's house, there's like people coming in and people coming out, and it turns out that um, now everyone's going to ask for advice about their family life, about their financial matter, all kinds, she's become um, the, the great, sage and, and um, great mother figure in the village, total transformation and, and he's, he can't work it out, what happened and so he, he goes to sit down, have a cup of tea with his grandmother and he asks her what, what happened and she said well it, it was all, it all happened when the master took that piece of calligraphy from me and I began to think that that uh, I am just like that old blunt pencil. I've always just assumed that I'm just this silly, nasty old woman that couldn't ever do anything with her life at all. Whatever I would make out of my life would be worthless and ugly. And I found that, that, that my relation, he wrote the most beautiful piece of calligraphy with that blunt old pencil. And the great master immediately took my grandson. I thought, well, if a blunt old pencil can make a beautiful piece of calligraphy, maybe I can make something beautiful out of my life. So I went home and I started um, performing acts of generosity for other people. And I started trying to be kind. And I gradually, gradually changed my life. And I found it was true. A blunt old pencil like me could make something beautiful. So that's the story. And uh, so I, I hope none of you think you're blunt old pencils, but you probably think you're something or other, and you're not. So, so whatever you think you are, you're not. That's the starting point.
Um, and so uh, this has been rather a long discourse, but this is the first time I've, I've met you all here, and um, I, I'm not uh, able to come to America very often, so I would like to offer this to you this evening. Maybe we, not too late for me. We could have one or two questions, um, and then if we're questioned out, we can um, have some tea and then some conversation. <laughs> so this is the pre-conversation questions. <laughs> Anybody, um, anything they'd like to ask before we switch into a more informal mode? Yes. Right on the topic, uh, I just start wondering why in the school there is such an emphasis on uh, teaching of conduct instead of teaching of understanding reality. Is it better or is it just the style of the school? Buddha said that when you wash your hands, your left hand washes your right hand, and your right hand washes your left hand. And Buddha says that conduct purifies wisdom, and wisdom purifies conduct. So uh, these two things have to be um, conducted simultaneously. It's not that conduct comes first, but if you are not very careful um, of your conduct, you will be continually acting in ways which cloud your mind and prevent the arising of the contentment and peace and self-respect and happiness which are the um, indispensable foundations for the arising of wisdom. The arising of wisdom, the, um, the true uh, direct understanding of suffering can only take place in a happy mind. This is a so great paradox. You, you can only understand suffering when you're happy. If you're suffering, you can't understand suffering. And to be happy, uh, you have to be leading a moral life. Uh, if you're not, uh, you, you won't ever truly respect yourself, and you won't be a Kalyana Mitta to yourself. So uh, the, the most important thing is to be a good friend to yourself, so you feel happy with yourself, and you have the emotional stability and maturity to develop insight into the three characteristics. So these kind of shortcut vipassana techniques um, tend to overlook the importance of emotional maturity. So samadhi is not just samatha, it's the whole process of developing the emotional maturity to develop wisdom. Um, and conduct and, and uh, wise conduct is integral to that. Mm. 